your brain then decides this is a rule, and it thinks it's trying to keep you safe. And really all it's doing is trying to prevent you from getting yourself into the, the pain or into the suffering. Welcome back to the Unbeal Mind podcast. My name is Mark Devine. So stoked to have you here today. Thanks so much for being here. Do not take it lightly. You have a billion things vying for your attention. And the fact that you're just listening or watching this is pretty extraordinary. So thank you. I have a really unique guest here. I'm super stoked to talk to Busy Gold from Scottsdale, Arizona, creator of the Break Method. Busy and I have a lot in common because we've been spending a lot of time in the past few years examining emotional shadow, childhood trauma, how it shows up in our life and drives our reactionary conditioning and torpedoes our efforts to succeed or to achieve the greatness that we deserve or even just peace of mind. And I think this is like one of the most important issues facing any leader, anyone trying to build a team, anyone trying to be a good parent, and it's just not talked about at all by most people, right, Busy? I mean, it's I'm so excited that it's you're really out there not talked about. talking about this. And I think I did talk to Dr. Laura Pence about it this mm. morning, who's one of the mm. podcasters for Spartan Up. Yeah, and she's one of our Unbeatable Mind Coach uh, so you know, experts. So she's well. fantastic. Yeah, Adore she's awesome. her. And we talked a lot this morning about how the mental health industry right now is in a phase of disorientation and disorganization and kind of these old paradigms are starting to fall away and there are new emerging techniques and I think areas of attention that are coming into prominence, mm -hmm. like really truly examining this early childhood patterning. Cause I think so many times we, as we age, we experience later traumas like mm -hmm. teens, twenties. Sure. And it's even if we look at people with military background, mm -hmm. right? There are people that come out of combat and it's very easy to say, I'm this way and my symptoms are this way because of this event. Mm -hmm. When almost in every it single, it, it may not yeah. be. And yeah. I would actually love to have yeah. a conversation with you because yeah. I have a pretty specific you are viewpoint on PTSD about, about this particular aspect. I think a lot of people that do come out of combat with the experience of PTSD and the label PTSD, I think that they had a, had to have some sort of previous mm -hmm. childhood patterning mm -hmm. that predisposed them mm -hmm. to label the situation that way when other people on their combat team might not have experienced mm -hmm. the very same event the same way and walked away with the same symptoms. Yeah, I agree with you. I think there is a lot of predisposal. There is a lot of, um, you know, people drawn to the military tend to have pretty rough childhoods. So it's pretty fair to say most people in the military, and this is a blanket statement. So, you know, don't hold me to it hundred percent. But most people have some sort of trauma. I did. You know, I had mm -hmm. a very, you know, kind of abusive family. And um, fortunately, because of um, the way I grew up and kind of my pushback against that and then getting into athletics and during sports and then martial arts and then breath work and then Zen meditation, all before I joined the military, gave me the pre-resiliency that it didn't affect me at all. But to support this, like one of our good friends who um, was on the board of my Courage Foundation is a guy named Josh Mance. Now, Josh was killed in combat, and he was uh, flatlined for 15 minutes before they revived him. And he went through a long period of post-traumatic stress. And through that process, he acknowledged and found that his issues were not combat. It's exactly what you're talking about, Busy. They were early childhood trauma, shadow, emotional stuff that he brought into the military with him. 100%. And uh, so he's, you know, one of his messages is that, you know, post-traumatic stress, combat stress really 
brings forth and exposes these wounds, but then amplifies them in a big way. Absolutely. It's almost almost a secondary experience. It has to, at least in the work that I do, it has to somehow mimic or mirror or reconfirm the previous rule that you learned in childhood. Exactly. Wounds it in a way. And makes it more exaggerated. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. How did you get into all this? Like, where did this start for you? It's probably your own childhood trauma, I imagine. So I do think that that had some, some aspects that are involved. I think, so my background actually, I've been a yoga teacher for a long time nice. and I was, I'm the founder of something called Buddha Yoga, B-U-T-I. Mm-hmm. And we have one of the largest yoga teacher training programs in the country. Nice. nice. So for years I'd been traveling, lecturing about energetic anatomy and through that kind of this emerging concept of chakra diagnostics mm-hmm. would come about. And I always had a very differing perspective than the yoga sutras and the way the the texts were traditionally laid out. And I tended to look at it, look at it from more of a socio-emotional perspective mm-hmm. and still bring in the energetic anatomy elements, but mm-hmm. try to look at it more holistically. Mm-hmm. And I was starting well, to see- Let me pause there. I, I think that makes a lot of sense to me because the, the ancient yoga and the way that Patanjali presented it was really from the individual subjective sphere. There was no socio or structural- way that they looked at yoga it was all an individual pursuit and yet when yoga was ported over the west it was it was ported over as a social pursuit yes and so that's brilliant not too many people know that yeah true yeah very true so i think it does and and i'm certainly not ever ego-minded enough to say that i'm the only one that has pieced this together there are many people that have pieced this together but the process by which i pieced it together was very organic for me and in working with people and using my own consciousness Mm -hmm. to arrive from one step to the next so it Mm -hmm. wasn't ever going externally and seeking outside Mm -hmm. information it was working with the students that were right in front of me lecturing from almost that more like pure consciousness state where after i would start lecturing about some of these concepts that i didn't know from learning it in a book mm-hmm. all of a sudden people would come back to me and they're like do you, do you even know what you said and then people started to record that's, them that's kind of the way i work too well and i think like i think that's where real truth exactly yeah. transmission that's where that's real truth cool. comes through yeah. so did but did you have um have you had therapy yourself have you had to unwind any of your own trauma i've certainly had a, a good amount of personal okay. trauma and my interest the interesting thing for me is when i look back my parents always had me in therapy mm-hmm. oh, but wow. i've very <laughs> they always had me in therapy but i think what i remember most about it was going there and i remember analyzing the therapist and thinking mm-hmm. why are my parents now, you don't know what, you you're, don't talking know what you're talking about <laughs> and i remember sitting there just immediately thinking that they were a fraud and i could pretty much get away with anything and just sit there and play games because all they really wanted to do at that childhood age was was yeah play games and then see if they could kind of poke and prod me with certain questions and i remember at a young age intellectually knowing that i could manipulate them in any way that i wanted and not have to do any of the work that they were trying to get me to do so i don't think i personally got anything out of it at the time but i think one of the things that did affect me the most was starting from age nine to about age 20 i had panic attacks Mm -hmm. all day long every day I would do different things to compartmentalize them or hide them and try to make it look like I was still very high functioning. And that would work some of the time. But I think what it affected the most for me personally was I knew that I had so much inside of me where I could be really high achiever and I always did really well in school. 
But when I would think about how hard I had to work to try to hide my panic attacks and how much it affected my thought process Do about travel. Do you have any sense for or, what, what the cause was or root of these attacks? Were? So it's interesting. I, if I look back, and I've done obviously some some reflective work on this, right before I had my first panic attack, my dad, who had already been hypochondriac anyways and already had an incredibly bad temper and was just the kind of person where things would be fine and then if something happened to him, all of a sudden all of us were sim- like simultaneously put into a state of chaos, mm-hmm. but no one would know why because mm-hmm. it would have to do with whatever was going on in his head and then it would affect all of us. Mm-hmm. So I was already in that state that I would call walking on eggshells my whole childhood. And then one day he came to me and he said, you know, you know, so-and-so that was just here last week for dinner. I don't even remember their name. Like for whatever reason, those tiny details don't mm-hmm. stick with me. You know, their son, who was exactly my age at the time, he raised his hand, told his his teacher he had to go to the, the nurse because he had a headache and he just dropped out of an aneurysm. And that was the only conversation we had about it. I didn't inquire anymore. He never really brought it up again. But I realized if you think about how there was no spiritual context in my life. There was no talk really about life or death. My mom would read the same book to me over and over again before bed. It was about bedtime routines. And there would always be a page with a little girl that was praying before bed and she would skip the page. And one day I would say, why do you always skip that page? And she said, because God doesn't exist. Like just like blanket that God doesn't exist. But, you know, you look back and my mom definitely dealt with religious abuse in mm-hmm. a Jehovah's Witness family. Mm. So it makes mm-hmm. sense that for her, she would go the opposite direction of and course. be like, that's not real. Yeah. I don't want to impose that on you. But at the same time, in trying not to impose that on me, she imposed, she imposed something on you. She imposed yeah. something on me. Yeah. So I think if you look at, and I think people, again, they look for big, loud issues right they look mm-hmm. for you know a divorce or right. someone dying or someone abuse, getting sick getting but it's, beaten, it's often these little abuse, repetitive right. things that keep reinforcing this I message agree. where your brain then decides this is a rule right and it thinks it's trying to keep you safe and mm-hmm. really all it's doing is trying to prevent you from getting yourself into the the pain or mm-hmm. into the suffering mm-hmm. which is where the healing is by the way 100 yeah. percent. you and i are on the same page i agree That's fascinating. i always tell people in my work that once you get past the first couple of weeks, you're actually going to start to get excited when you get triggered. Right. Like getting triggered and yeah, having someone pressure button. Yeah, because you're exposing a new pattern exactly. or, or a new way that an old pattern is triggered. And Absolutely. then you can objectify it and begin to work on it. Yes. That's so cool. So yeah. when you look at the whole picture, instead of just thinking about, you know, just my dad telling me this about the kid dying, it was watching him constantly be a hypochondriac and always be dying of something, right? And then this you know, completely blanket statement, God doesn't exist. And then I would have all my friends talking about religion. But to me, there was no open conversation about spirituality or energy or like what happens when people die. And then for my dad to just give me this blanket statement, this little kid thought he had a headache. Next thing he knew he died. And then that was that. that was my yeah. brain jumped to a conclusion. If that kid had a headache and he just died, and I don't know what happens when you die, this means that if I get a headache, I could die. And from that point forward, I basically took on all of my dad's hypochondriac behaviors and decided that any little ache or pain that I felt could mean death and that death was the scariest thing I could possibly think of because of it was undefined. Wow. So that led to the anxiety and the panic yes, attacks. Yes, which then, it, and it's so funny to look back at it now. It's all social, psychosomatic, you know. It's 100%. All self-induced. And all of the things that 
if I go back to different moments in time would have felt like my whole reality was just, you know, smaller and smaller and smaller. What I would be capable of doing with my life seemed incredibly limited Mm -hmm. because I wouldn't, how would I be able to hide this from Mm -hmm. my boss? How would I be able to travel for work? Because it would get worse on airplanes Mm -hmm. because the way it, it, what it turned into was always calculating how close I was to a hospital so that in case I was going to die, I was fa- close how, how to a hospital. Old did so it had last? like an OCD component to yeah, it as well. Like that. Wow. This go on into your 20s? It stopped when I was 20. When you're 20. And what was the catalyst for it to stop? I think there were a variety of catalysts, but I think one of them for me was doing deeper spiritual work to mm-hmm. understand that there, without, you know, getting too spiritual, I had to do the work to understand my definition mm-hmm. of energy and mm-hmm. life and death and, 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 the, and the importance of having a human experience and yeah. what humanity means in a greater context. So once I was able to do that. And, and so, but I'm curious, so that to have that experience or that exposure at 20 is uncommon. Yes. So how did you find that? Did you find a teacher or did you find a yoga program or uh, a church group or what was it that caused or that brought you that? Well, it's kind of a wild chain of events. Okay. I'll give you the the quick synopsis. So, and I, I'm a firm believer that, you know, when you track back to certain things in the moment, little, little things that course correct you that feel like the end of something that you've been trying to mm-hmm. go after and achieve when you look back you can see exactly how it pivoted you into the exact right, right. place it's at the right the time opening of a door which also from looked at the other side is the end or the closing of something 100 percent. so at this time you know throughout like i said i was always a high achiever despite having to kind of compartmentalize or hide my panic attacks so i was a high level competitive skier went mm-hmm. to a boarding school for oh, competitive cool. skiing um was on the u.s ski team and was really pursuing Did you train a goal. In Lake placid at all um never in lake placid oh, right. but lots that was in my, Park win- City. my summer home yeah so i mean it is beautiful i have been there before yeah. um i started off racing for okimo in vermont i was an okay. east coast girl mm-hmm. so similar weather to mm-hmm. lake placid freezing and ice yeah, very cold nicey and steep yes very so if you can ski there you can ski anywhere so you must be good it's true and mm-hmm. so and at the time i was doing alpine moved to colorado to go live with my ski coaches because my parents didn't want to drive me to vermont every weekend from mm-hmm. connecticut which was understandable and i've been really pursuing my ski career for such a long time and when i was 19 i i blew up both my acls and my right meniscus That's- at this point in my career i had switched to freestyle which mm-hmm. happened when i was 17 and i think just you know how it is like when you're a high level athlete and you're used to training and pushing mm-hmm. yourself and i'd already been a competitive gymnast as well it was a really easy pivot for me mm-hmm. into freestyle so when I did that, I started performing at a high level pretty quickly, got a scholarship to University of Colorado in Boulder and nice. was skiing there. Mm-hmm. But almost at the beginning of the ski season, blew out both my ACLs and my right meniscus. That's like the end of the world, right? For It felt athlete. like the end of the world mm-hmm. for me because my whole, you know, true north was being an Olympic skier. Right. It was like all I had ever really thought about for a mm-hmm. long time and, you know i would you know play with other careers like i was into film and mm-hmm. i wanted to study broadcast journalism like little things like that that were kind of on the sidelines but this was the, the, the constant thing, right so that obviously no longer seemed like an option for me um and at the time i had already had uh when i was 15 i was sitting on my desk one day in high school like this and i noticed a lump behind my ear and found out that i had a tumor that Good Lord. Yeah, it was, 
So the funny oh, the thing stack, is stacking up the disaster. Oh there. yeah, if holy you, cow! They keep going for a while, but I'm disaster free right now. <laughs> Good for you. I'll tell you that Thank much. You. So I ended up having this tumor that wrapped around my optic nerve. It, it took me out for a while. Ah. So all of this that was to say, two, three years before you blew out your knees. Exactly, three years before I blew out my knees, and I, I came back from that. But the surgeries that were required in that made me petrified of surgery. So I'm trying to give you context for why yeah. when I blew up both my ACLs, to me, there was not a chance in hell I was getting surgery on my mm -hmm. ACLs. Mm -hmm. I was going to look for any alternative therapy protocol mm -hmm. to rehab them, even if that meant I never was able to ski again, to avoid surgery. Because I'd had so many in such a short period of time. And I know everyone's body's different. I swear on everything that I know to be true in this life, after having anesthesia, it really affected my body for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I could, it felt like ice was running through my veins for wow. over a year. Wow. I felt like a constant chill and it just literally felt like I was cold from the inside out. And it yeah. was just something I never wanted to right. allow myself to experience again if I could avoid it. Mm -hmm. So I searched for all these alternative methodologies, went and met some people, did all kinds of like electro stim and needling and things like this. And then finally one person was like, why don't you try yoga? Mm -hmm. It's like, all right, I'll go try yoga. Mm -hmm. I went to one yoga class and had a, I mean, I had a, a really profound experience in Shavasana mm -hmm. at the end where I had never attempted to meditate before. Mm -hmm. And I just remember going so deep so quickly that when I was hearing the instructor try to get us out, I actually felt the panic rise up in me where I felt like I was trapped and it felt like I was so many floors <laughs> below her you voice that out. I couldn't yeah. figure out how to navigate myself there. But I also felt an incredible sense of peace. Mm -hmm. So I remember trying to figure out how to mentally navigate myself to her voice, eventually came out and when I rolled over on my side, she came over and she was like, your yoga practice is beautiful. And she was like, I just have to say that I got this really amazing vision that you're going to be a really famous yoga instructor. Like, huh. How long have you been practicing? And I was like, this is my first class. And she was like, here? And I was like, it's my actual first class. And she was like, wow. And she, her name was Misty. That's she true. put her hands on my forehead and she was like, wow. She was like, I saw that really strong. And I was like, okay. So I left the class and I was like, I might be into this, you know, because I was already, I had the competitive spirit in me. Right. So to have somebody in my first class be like, your yoga practice is beautiful. It, you know, boosted my 19 year old ego, which was broken and damaged mm. from having mm. dealt with my knees. And I had a, the series of events that happened immediately following this were hundred percent divine intervention was walking down Pearl street. I don't know if you've ever been to Boulder. Have you been to Boulder? No, I'm not. No. Okay. So Pearl street's just like one of those walking malls mm -hmm. where there's like stores and hippie cafes mm -hmm. and everything and you know, street performers and things. So I'm like walking down the street and all of a sudden this older woman, that's probably like late seventies, early eighties starts running after me. And I was like, at first I was like, is she going to knock me over? Comes right up to me, stops. And she looks at me and she's like, I have a message for you. And I was like, what? <laughs> Cause uh -huh. you have to remember at this point, any chance I had at being spiritually open was just kind of like squashed. Sure. You know, technically mm -hmm. I was raised Jewish, but I don't, it wasn't like mm -hmm. anything that had a spiritual component to it. It mm -hmm. was like going to high holidays and socializing with people. Mm -hmm. So when she came to me and said, I have a message for you, she said, you're going to become, and this was literally right after this yoga experience, you're going to become the most famous student of Dolores Cannon. And I was like, 
I don't know who Dolores Cannon is. And at this point, I'm like, is somebody playing a practical joke right. on me? This yeah, is insane. Where is the, uh, yeah, you're on candid camera. Yeah, and I was like, I don't I don't know who Dolores Cannon is. And she was like, she's a past life regression therapist. And she was like, there's a bookstore right there called The Lighthouse. Go get one of her books. And I was like, this lady's just trying to market her huh. books to me. This is insane. Fascinating. Because I'm, I, you know, I was a skeptic Past for sure. Past life regression therapy. Past life oh, regression cool. therapy. Yeah. So at the same time, this woman, she definitively ran from far away yeah, to yeah. get me. And this was an older woman. Like she, she had a had mission a to talk to me. So yeah. I was like, all right. So I go into my first metaphysical bookstore. I've never been in one in my whole life. I walk in there. It smells like incense. Mm-hmm. There's tapestries everywhere. And I'm like, whoa, this is like a totally different world. Right. Um, I ask for Dolores Cannes books and I see like this whole section of, of books. And immediately I see one called The Convoluted Universe. And I was like, sounds about right to me grab mm-hmm. it go home and start reading it and is that her book or it's one of her books okay. yeah and at this point i'd always disliked reading mm-hmm. i can't like it just i would find everything that i was doing pretty much just incredibly boring except the madeline langle series with a wrinkle in time like if it had mm-hmm. some sort of metaphysical or like broader magical yeah magical element to it i could keep myself interested mm-hmm. but in general i had trouble staying interested mm-hmm. in books so this book was probably a thousand pages tore through it then went back i need another one i need another one and it was the first time that i felt like my brain was ignited and excited to keep consuming information Mm -hmm. and unlike before where my gut check would immediately be like there's something not right about this person don't trust this where it was just Mm -hmm. like that inner guidance most of the things that i was reading it was like yes 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 this is crazy like this is like the most incredible yes i've ever felt in my life so I kept reading and then I go on her website because I'm all excited. I'm like, yes, I'm going to be one of her students. It's going to be the best thing ever. And she doesn't teach her methodology. And I was like, oh, this is horrifying. And it's probably at this point, like 1999 or 2000. She, you mean she doesn't have any training? No at this seminars? point, didn't. Yeah, wasn't teaching it yet. Fascinating. So I get on her email list and this is back in the day when you're like pumped up about being on someone's email list right. where you're like checking because you're like, are you going to send me something? <laughs> So I'm like constantly checking my email inbox, finally get something, you know, Dolores is teaching her first, you know, level one, um, I don't know, QHHT program in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Mm -hmm. Here's the application process. We're only accepting 10 applicants. So again, we have to remember that there's still this kind of like cocky, skeptical 19 year old Mm -hmm. aspect of me at this point. So in the application process, instead of answering all the questions at this point, I had read enough of her books to know that in a lot of her sessions, there's a a group of entities that she ends up speaking to very frequently that they refer to themselves as the council. And I knew from this point that they help her in decision making. Like they'll know so if somebody's right or not. Or her client's counsel. They refer to themselves as the council. It's essentially do you know what you I'm sure you do like spirit guides know about or, the Akashic records. Yes, yeah. They consider themselves to be basically the keepers of the Akashic oh, records. That's they're Arcturian in nature if mm-hmm. you kind of go down that path. Mm-hmm. So this council helps her make a lot of her decisions about things like this. And I know this from reading her book. So in my cocky 19-year-old application, I write about this experience with this woman finding me on the street, telling me I was going to be one of her most famous students. And I was like, and we all know that the council is going to make this decision anyways. So <laughs> see you in Fayetteville. <laughs> Didn't even fill out the application because part of me wanted to test it. Like if this is meant to be, right. I can do the steps incorrectly and I will still get this. Yeah. (laughs) So lo and behold, I get in, go to Fayetteville, do the thing. And I'm one of 10 students. And I'm at least in, in my 
perspective, everyone else was significantly older than me and they were all like psychics and energy healers and these like big, yeah, like, and I'm just a 19 year old that almost doesn't even believe in spirituality. (laughs) Like it's just, I'm like my spiritual concepts at this point are like hanging on by a thread. But I go in there and I, I'm one of the things I'm most gifted at is I am a fast learner. Mm -hmm. So I absorb everything she's teaching and I leave there thinking, I don't know why me, but I know that at some point it will present itself. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the course, my birthday's coming up and I had been waiting to try to get a session with her. And it was really hard even at this time to get a session with her. So I finally about to have my session. I'm in my hotel room in some terrible motel in Fayetteville, Arkansas. This is like a phone call session? No, she was physically there. because oh, Yeah, she. that's where she was living. So I was all ready for my session. And that morning I woke up and I've never lost my voice another day in my life. No voice. Gone. Huh. Nothing. And I'm sitting there crying and I'm trying to write her a letter, you know. And a lot of times in her sessions when she's in that part where instead of walking people through past lives, she's directly communicating with their subconscious, mm-hmm. which you know from this whole mm-hmm. conversation about transmission I believe that almost every single one of us, if you know your diet's right mm-hmm. and you do the work to truly know what are your thoughts and mm-hmm. what are not your thoughts, mm-hmm. you can tap into this mm-hmm. kind of direct line of transmission. Mm-hmm. So in that process, she often is able to get messages about who's coming next or what to pay attention mm-hmm. for. So as I'm writing my note, she in her previous session got from the council exactly what to tell me about why I wasn't supposed to have my session. So she's walking toward my hotel room while I'm writing this message crying because I'm heartbroken. I don't get to have the session because in my mind, it's like, you know, all my dreams are dashed. It's not meant to be, you Mm. know? And she walks in and she looks at me and she was like, I know. And I was like, like trying to point to things. And she was like, I know. She's like, you're not supposed to have your session. Sit down. And I sat there and she was like, what, what's involved in this session? Is this a past life regression session? Yeah. Like so it's, it's hypnotherapy. Okay. Essentially what the protocol is, is, you know, the goal is to get you more connected with your internal visualization mm-hmm. than actually perceiving external mm-hmm. stimulus. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So how that process is done, she gives you a variety of different protocols to mm-hmm. use. And obviously, you know, this. some people it takes longer, mm-hmm. some people it's not possible. Mm-hmm. The irony is that the people that want it the most are the hardest to put under. Interesting, right? Because they're they're excited. They're yeah. an excitable yeah. mindset. Too much you know, attachment. Too, yeah, to too it. much yeah. attachment, and they're they're too excited and don't actually allow themselves to mm-hmm. surrender. Yeah. Versus the people that don't believe, they're like, yeah, try me. They're the easiest to go under every time because yeah. they don't believe it's possible. Right. So their protective mechanisms aren't even up because they think that you're a fraud. They're the mm-hmm. easiest ones to get mm-hmm. under. So the timing is different for everybody, but once you're under. The goal is to direct your subconscious to lead you to three past lives that are relevant to whatever problems you're reporting in that session. Mm-hmm. So, and there's some interesting concepts here where, especially in my work, I believe that a lot of our experiences are imprinted and that doesn't actually mean that we experience those past lives themselves, like in our soul essence. And I think a lot of it is actually well, and it coincides with what I'm about to tell you about Dolores anyways, but in this process, you only try to go to three relevant past lives. So it's mm-hmm. not just kind of like, you know, shooting in the dark, mm-hmm. whatever issues they came there trying to sort through, you ask their subconscious to specifically direct them to moments in time that are imprinted in their subconscious that are affecting them in this present lifetime. Okay. But three past lives that they, that their spirit or soul had lived. 
Yeah, or at least is imprinted with at this moment in time. So that it's essentially like their brain is still pulling Mm -hmm. contextual information Mm -hmm. from that life, even if it's not necessarily a life that they lived, it still can be impacting how they're perceiving the environment around them. That's an interesting concept. Yeah, I'd have to think through that a little bit. So, and then at the end, before their session, they come to you with a list of questions that they want you to ask their subconscious. Mm -hmm. Uh, These can be questions about their life's purpose, about relationships, but it can even be things like, where did I lose my sunglasses? Because Mm -hmm. often the subconscious is aware of feeling the pressure. Like, let's say your sunglasses fell off your back pocket. Even if you're not consciously aware of your sunglasses dropping off of your back pocket, your subconscious might be aware of the pressure leaving and exactly the moment when you lost them. So often we know things about ourselves that we don't consciously know. You Mm -hmm. know this with implicit and explicit memory. So at the end, you go through this phase of questioning the subconscious. And this is often when those messages will come through from, Mm -hmm. you know, what she refers to as the council. So when she came to me, she said very specifically, the council wants you to know that you're already exactly on the path that you're supposed to be on. And because you're so cocky and stubborn, knowing anything else might actually derail you because you like to try to test your life's mission, which made me laugh because it's exactly what I had done up Mm -hmm. to this point. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, I'm not going to fill out the application. If it's meant to be, it's meant to be. And she said that very specifically, they said that having too much information would actually derail me from the mission that I was on. And they said that what they needed me to know is that I'm actually on the council and that I came here to carry Dolores's work forward to a place that it's never been carried <laughs> that's forward so to. Cool. Wait, and, so she told you that at that session. Yeah. Wow, and my whole life I had been seeing 1019, you know, like every, you know, people would be like 1111, whatever the time is on the clock. You know, I've never been somebody that's really drawn to numbers, but I would see this over and over again my whole life. And I remember one day in 2016, I, I started thinking about it. I'm like, what? And I went to bed thinking, I just want to know once and for all, like, why 1019? It's such an odd number combination. And I woke up in the morning thinking, I wonder if Dolores died. And sure enough, she died on October 19th. And oh what had been relayed to me was that I was going to be taking her work forward to a, a place that was, you know, unexpected in a place that she would never have actually dreamed of her work going. And that is how I I understood what I had been doing with break method was essentially using the container that she created. Was the break method start before she passed away? Break method I started in 2014. So yeah, I didn't realize that she'd passed away because I hadn't been like a huge part of her life for the later years. I believe 2016 or yeah, I think 2016 or 2015, but October 19th. So during these years, I had been, you know, transmitting mm-hmm. this course content that kept becoming more and more defined. You know, it might've mm-hmm. started as one lecture and then every time I would answer a set of questions or I would see <laughs> the same sort of patterns pop up in my students, I would right. document it. And the next thing you know, I had 80 hours of lecture content and right. a course that was, you know, very well sequenced and not coming from me. That's cool. Yeah. And I understand now how, this process of act- activating and accessing the subconscious is exactly what we do mm-hmm. in break method without the need to have somebody sit there and put you under mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. while also addressing a variety of other things that I think come from other sort of transmissions. Mm-hmm. But that's essentially how break method came to be. It's been a process of essentially transmitting through lecture to a point where I was able to trust myself and develop it as a mm-hmm. skill mm-hmm. instead of before I would, you know, do that kind of dance with it where it's like, but I didn't learn this. Is it true? You know, should I keep doing this? Is this Mm -hmm. something that's safe? 
And after doing it for enough years and seeing, you know, thousands of students that I had come through my course have pretty serious results, I started to trust it. And the mm -hmm. more I trusted it and took it seriously as a skill, the, the stronger the right. skill got. So is it connected at all to yoga, your yoga program? Is there an overlap? So the yoga program is something that, you know, it, it expanded really rapidly. We have 6,000 instructors. It's mm -hmm. taught in 27 countries and actually just recently sold the majority share of the company mm -hmm. so that I can focus on break method. Mm -hmm. So I'm still involved in the direction of the company and things like that, but I focus all of my efforts on break method mm -hmm. and do a lot of lecturing about but the yoga is more of a traditional yoga program. The yoga is a really dynamic modern program mm -hmm. that infuses primal movement mm -hmm. and what we call spiral structure technique. Mm -hmm. So because you do have a deep understanding of true yoga, mm -hmm. what people in the West view as yoga with the large mm -hmm. muscle poses like warrior series and things like that, that's actually not traditional yoga mm -hmm. at all. It's very Western yoga. Mm -hmm. Traditional yoga were, were all the kriyas and the mm -hmm. deep abdominal contractions mm -hmm. So that actually mimics a lot more what we do in booty. But I think mm. in the West, people see what we do and they're like, that's not real yoga. And it is incredibly real, tangible yoga. But we work more with the, uh, working the spiral, activating mm. and balancing the chakras and bringing in those primal movements that mm. might not have the linear structure mm -hmm. like a warrior series, but certainly fulfill all of the requirements to make a yoga practice yoga. Oh, that's really cool. I'd like to learn more about that. We have a yoga program that I developed too called Kokoro Yoga. Awesome. Kokoro means heart-mind integration. Mm -hmm. And it's an integration of, you know, traditional asana, but very simple poses. Mm -hmm. I share your view about all that we do. Most of it's around spinal work, mm -hmm. healing, integrating, lengthening, you know, the spine, but also integrating the breath, you know, so that every, every movement, you know, there's great awareness of how the breath is moving the spine and moving the mind and then moving the emotions. Yes. And so we work with um, asana, or asana, we work with functional fitness movements and we work with martial movements. Yes. So and our practice every very session aligned. is very, very specific. The whole idea is to bring yoga back to a personal practice, mm -hmm. personalized by the time of the day, the time of the year, the body type, the injuries, you know, seasonality, whatnot. One size does not fit all, and one pose does not fit all. So I've been very inspired by my martial arts and yoga practice, you know. I started that training maybe when I was about 20, right? When you were getting into, yep. you know, your thing. We don't, you know, ours is, we've only run three teacher trainings and we're not sure we're going to continue them in this form because I don't really have the time. And there's a lot of yoga out there. And so yeah. we look at it more as the personal practice of our Unbeatable Mind program. Well, you know? I definitely look forward to checking it out. Yeah, that'd be fun to share notes. Yeah. So how do you, transmit it now is you have online courses do you run seminars so it's a four-month online course okay uh, at this point it's about 80 hours of lecture content okay so some of it's interactive lecture some of it's pre-recorded lecture it also includes small group sessions which mm -hmm. are broken down in groups of 25 and you and then do that you, digitally or? yep everything's online and then it does include a two-day live event that's mm -hmm. optional if you want to come work with us in person i find that for some people those last little bows on really all the work that they've done it really helps um but I, I do think we do an exceptional job for having a exclusively online program for really getting to the core of who a person is and making sure that we have the safeguards in there to not let a person lie to themselves or to us mm -hmm. and i, I look is at it the a progressive course where you you have to do this and then prove that you did that to move on to the next module type of thing 
No, it's not so much because the whole thing is is very much facilitated. So mm. in the small groups, you'll know very quickly so you go if, into you're, a if your work is accurate. Kind of thing, so exactly. It has a start yes. and end. You don't mm. just go it's, in. Yeah, it's not an evergreen program. Everybody goes through it together in a timed sequence. Oh, that's pretty cool. It's we find that it has to be done that way mm -hmm. because also one of the things that I found is you learn so much more about yourself in actually watching your your fellow peers go through the same structure mm -hmm. because your protective mechanisms aren't up for their stories. Mm -hmm. And if you have the right tools to actually sift through the information and look at the cause and effect relationships, you can notice resonant experiences with other people, even if the names of the people are different. Right. And because your protective mechanisms aren't up because it's not your story, all of a sudden you can claim it and be like, yeah. Oh my God, I do that. Yeah. Yeah. So that. we make sure that everyone stays present and vulnerable for everyone else's experience as mm -hmm. well, because we also want this to be a skill that you can learn and take with you. Mm -hmm. That's to me what makes it sustainable. And mm -hmm. we call it the school of sustainable self-mastery. Number one is a joke because I don't believe that self-mastery exists because mm -hmm. self-mastery is something that requires you it's to- a, It's elusive. It's just a journey. hundred percent. Right? There's no there there. So it's say. not that I think you can actually arrive right. at that, but right. it's a sustainable process by which you're able to- take this skill set and use it for the rest of your Deploy life because it on yourself it, once you, you know once you support. heal one aspect mm -hmm. as you move into the other aspects of your life other things will prevent present themselves yeah. you know you will get thrown curveballs and mm -hmm. this will teach you how to react to the curveballs in a way that's not autopilot pattern from mm -hmm. childhood but now a way that you're actually choosing that's in line with where you want to go in your life mm -hmm. yeah i love that and mm -hmm. i do also do two-day intensives and Actually, coming up in a week and a half, I'm doing a two-day intensive in a women's prison in Vermont. Really cool. Yeah. So I'm excited about wow. being able to apply this to the prison population mm -hmm. and also to vets as the other population. That's cool. I mean, that's it's interesting you say that. There's so much parallel here. I started the foundation three or four years ago called the Courage Foundation. Mm -hmm. And my first population I worked with were prisoners. Yeah. And I went into a uh, prison in Nor Norwalk, Connecticut. That's, yeah, I grew up in Connecticut. It was I grew pretty up in intense. Yeah, and I Norwalk. met with a bunch of lifers and we yep. had a great discussion. I donated 2,500 books of mine. And what I found is, um, you know, I seeded the foundation, but we needed to raise money. Yeah. No one wanted to give us money to work with prisoners. It was sad. We were also working with vets, and so we pivoted and just say, okay, we're, we're an organization that works with vets who are suffering, that are suicidal, at-risk suicidal, suffering from post-traumatic stress. But our real mission is to also work with prisoners and abused women mm -hmm. and bring them the tools of what we call unbeatable mind, which are you know, uh, tools to become self-healing and self-evolutionary yes. to evolve to your highest potential you know, as a human. We're incredibly but prison, aligned on The prison population things. is really... Like there's a lot of good people in prison who just made a, a mistake. You know what I mean? And yeah. a lot of them have, you know, I get letters all the time from people in prison who've done my fitness program or done my yoga program or read Unabeal Mind. And it's humbling, you know? It's like, wow, can you imagine being locked up for life because of one moment of rage or something like that? And I'm not saying that, you know, there shouldn't be some punishment or some sort of process for bringing him back in. But the way we do it is simply barbarian, you know? I agree. Yeah. And this particular group that I'm working with are coming up for parole mm. and had previously been victims of sex trafficking. Mm. So the program is meant to help them understand that their 
cognitive abilities at the time that they committed the yeah, crime. They were seriously were pre- compromised. Yeah, exactly, compromised by their previous experience of sex trafficking and hopefully to give them the language and understanding of the cause and effect relationship so that they can speak to that at their parole hearing That's really in a cool. way that will right. actually resonate with mm-hmm. the parole board. Yeah, good luck with that process. Thank if there's you. any way we can be helpful, let me know. Yeah, I'd love to find ways to collaborate with you. And the other group that I really want to work with are foster teens. Mm. Because it's a group where they're right at that mm-hmm. at that place where they can choose left or right, right. and most of them choose left. It's easier and path, yeah. It's a, I think it's a great community to work with because I think children are already so resilient and mm-hmm. teens, I think, have an incredible ability to adapt and evolve quickly if you get in there and you do it at the right time and use the right language so it's it's an environment Mm. that i really want to try to work with more as well oh that's great love that so we got to wrap this up here um this is a question i've been asking a couple people today we live in such a crazy negative world and it seems to be getting worse right louder more nasty what's your vision for the future and do you see us turning this around through work that like you and I and you know Spartan and you know this thousand points of lights are doing but or is the tidal wave too big to push against and are we heading toward another human calamity I certainly do believe that we can change it and one of my guiding principles personally is that's what I came here on a mission Mm. to help the collective do and while I think our experience externally with media and social media feels like it's getting worse and worse. I also believe that simultaneously more and more people mm-hmm. are waking up mm-hmm. and that really the the tipping point of those scales is actually much more in our favor than mm-hmm. we're led to believe it Agreed. is if we only listen to mass media. Mm-hmm. And I think our biggest issue is that, and this is going to get kind of weird for a second, but I think that the powers that be that control the world that we live in want us divided and separated yeah. and at war with each other. And until it benefits them. Yeah, absolutely. And until human beings can wake up to this knowledge, we will always be held hostage by this pervasive feeling of negativity and separation. Mm-hmm. That's actually not real. Mm-hmm. I agree. And you can't actually sift through that until you do the work to know yourself and right. know what's real and not real for yourself. And because then, you then it starts to become to more it. apparent when you when you right. see it, you can acknowledge it and you're like, oh, I see it. Right. Like just when you see it, you feel a thought pop up in your head and you're like, that's not me. This isn't relevant. Mm-hmm. This isn't logical. This doesn't belong here. Like delete. In my head, mm-hmm. I'll actually delete thoughts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You'll start to see that out in your environment. But it's like you don't know until you know. So until you know that in yourself and you have context, you almost it's like it's like they're seeing a false reality. Mm-hmm. And the powers that be, you know, bank on people living in that false reality right. and essentially being hypnotized. So I think we have to help people find themselves internally mm-hmm. so that they can actually start to see the world for what it really is and see these these fake structures for mm-hmm. what they are so that we can properly dismantle them. Yeah, yeah and, and get enough people thinking, dreaming, visualizing, and loving a positive future, then those structures will just fall apart. I agree. You know? Yeah. Cool. I agree with you, that vision, by the way. Yeah, it's... Um, and so I appreciate you doing your part. Keep you it up. Well. Thank you. I'll cheer you on. That's awesome. Awesome. I'd love to learn more and uh, support you. So, and thanks for doing this podcast. Oh, of course. I would love to collaborate with you on it anything. It was a lot of fun.
Thanks. All right, folks. uh, Busy Gold. Say goodbye. Oh, you're you're saying goodbye to that camera. I'm saying goodbye to that camera. We'll say goodbye to both. Thanks so much for listening. This is an important podcast. Listen to it again. Trust me, there's some secret coded information in here They're just that Busy just left with us. <laughs> I'm going to listen to it again too. And that means you have a part to do. So do your part, work on yourself, be unbeatable one day at a time. That's what we mean by doing the work. Push back against the forces of darkness. <laughs> be the change you want to see in the world. Thank you for listening. Hoo-yah. Divine out. Oh, oh, oh.